Amen. I'm going to talk this morning about God's sovereignty. And it's not going to be an in-depth study of uh, theology of sovereignty. I'm going to let somebody else do that. I want to look at God's working in the lives of his people. Hopefully, at the end, it'll give us a sense of peace that God really is in control. And because of that, he'll give us rest in the fact that God is taking care of us on our walk, on this Christian walk, this pathway that we're all on. I want to start with a definition, a definition of God's sovereignty. And I think we would all agree here that God is in control of what goes on on here on the earth. And more specifically, what goes on in each of our lives. He didn't wind up the world, give it a fling into space and, you know, let it have its own way and hope things would work out, would play themselves out. He didn't hope in the Old Testament that his testimonies or that his prophecies would somehow come to pass 2,000 years later, as we see them still come to pass today. He had to be sovereign or else everything that he would have said in the Old Testament that this will happen, a son will be born, it had to happen. He had to cause those to happen. And even, as I said, in the things that are going on in the world today, in Revelation 13, it talks about that no man could buy or sell anything without having a mark. Can you imagine what that looked like to the first century Christian? That would have made, that would have made any sense. But to us, 2,000 some years later, it makes total sense because we're, we're on the threshold. of We're so close, we can smell it. You know, with our cell, you can pay on your cell phone. You know, they've already have the mark that they've put in people's hand to test it out. Everything's barcoded. It really will be a cashless society. And it's so, I mean, that was prophesied. And John did that in, in, when he wrote Revelations, that that day would come. God doesn't forget his promises. 2,000 years later, we're basically there. You know, I've heard of that of all my life. All my saved life, there's going to be a mark. Yeah, 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 right. Well, here we are. Here we are on the threshold of it. And violence. Matthew 24 says, violence filled the earth like in the days of Noah. I just heard that I think Louisville's up to 108 people murdered. Chicago had 762 people murdered last year. Barely even makes the news. That's more than Los Angeles and New York put together. You know, fights in schools. We never used to have the fights in schools that you hear about now. Shootings in workplaces, domestic violences, husbands killing their wives, children shooting their parents. You know, 10 or 12 years ago, okay, 15 or 20 years ago, we didn't even know what a terrorist was. I mean, it wasn't even, it was never in the news. It was never, we never even, never even heard of it. You know, the biggest, the biggest thing to us was a, a, a hijacking in the sky. And if you're under 35, you probably don't even know what that is. Somebody got on the plane, had a gun, would walk up, open the door and get in the cockpit and say, take me to Havana. You know, that's what, you know, that was, and that was big news. They would fly over there, land, the, land everybody would get off. Ooh, that was a different ride. Today we blow, you know, we, today planes are blown up. They're used as bombs. 
Um, also in 2 Timothy, disobedience and disrespect. The disrespect of some students on universities and schools is totally out of hand. You know, now, if a speaker is coming to your university and you don't agree with them, you, burn, you start fires. You burn buildings down because you don't agree with them. You know, what about the president and disrespect for that office? Irregardless of who sits there, God puts in and God tears down governments. Watch my mouth. Israel becoming a nation. It's been prophesied for a thousand years and it's come to pass in this generation. There's people sitting here when that prophecy was fulfilled. God said this would happen. He has to be in control and we're on the other side of it. See, in our rear view mirrors, we're seeing this happen. 2 Timothy 3 also talks without natural affection. Today we have girls giving birth to children and leaving them at designated safe spots. How do you do that? How do you do that? Can you imagine that? That is not natural affections. I guess that's better than putting them in dumpster, as some have done. So many same-sex lawsuits going on, you can't count them. That's not natural affection. We've got, you know, bakers in court because they didn't bake a cake. And we've got venues in court because you can't have it here. We've got preachers. They're next. And we've got, and we need to make bathroom bills. A bathroom bill? <laughs> That's unnatural. A.W. Tozer defines sovereignty as the attribute of God by which he rules the entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. In order for God to be in control of the large things, he has to be control of the small things. He's just not concerned about your, who you'll marry, your salvation, and the end of your life. He's worried about everything. He's worried. He's concerned about everything in between. Things that we experience every day. God saw you when you got out of bed this morning. You are never out of his sight. You're never out of his hearing. And you're never out of his care. He is never out of earshot. Did you ever hear somebody say something? They said, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I hope God wasn't listening. Oops is right. He's so concerned about us that he has every hair numbered on our heads. Now, how insignificant, how mundane is that? I know he didn't have to count as far for you. But it proves how significant we are to him. You know, if somebody in Russia would ask God, where's Caleb this morning? he would know Caleb's in Shelbyville in church. If he knows that, he sees that. He intricately knows each one of us. The problems and the questions we face, the victories and the battles we've fought and the battles we're going to fight. And I just want to look at a few scriptures just to make sure that we're all on the same page here. In Psalm 139, let's turn to that. Psalm 139, the whole chapter, but I'm just going to look at certain verses that 
in our finiteness, we really can't imagine that. I think sometimes we, fit, we forget God is spirit and put human terms to him and say, well, he can't be everywhere. I mean, how could you be everywhere? I mean, how could you be everywhere? Psalm 139, verse 2. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. You understand my thoughts from afar off. Verse 4. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Another version says, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. That's incredible. That's incredible to me. Verse 15, my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book, all my members were written which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. I don't know what the advocates of abortion do with that. I don't know how they can, I don't know, I don't get that. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And think about this, in Jonah, God appoints a fish to be at the right place, the right size, at the right time when this man is thrown over, and he swallows him before he drowns, and the fish obeys. Later on in Jonah, God appoints a plant to grow over Jonah in Nineveh, and the plant obeys. He appoints a worm to make the plant wither. And the worm obeys. God appoints a wind to blast and scorch Jonah. And the wind obeys. God controlled the fish that the disciples were told to catch to pay their taxes. How many fish have you caught with money in its mouth? The fish obeyed. He knows when the tiniest bird falls to the ground. So now are we all on the same page? God knows. With this in mind, I want to consider the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. We all know the story. It's in Genesis 37. You can turn there. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to read parts of it. I'm just going to highlight certain parts of it so we kind of remember. Uh, let's, we'll start in um, just the first verse in chapter 37. And Jacob, and Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And then verse down to verse 4. It's talking about Joseph. You know the story that his brothers didn't like him. They thought he was a favorite. And verse 4 says, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all of his brethren... They hated him and could not speak peaceably under him, unto him. Verse 12, And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed their flock in Shechem. Come, I will send thee unto them. And he said unto him, Here am I. And he said unto him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with thy flocks, and bring them word again. Bring me word again. 
So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What seekest thou? And of course, he was looking for his brethren. And when the brethren seen him coming, in verse 20, Come now, therefore, and let us slay some, slay him, and cast him into some pit. And we will say that some evil beast devoured him, and we shall say, What will become of his dreams? And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of his hands and said, Let us not kill him. So we know the story that they put him in the pit, and the Ishmaelites came, and, they, and his brothers sold him as a slave to them, and they took him down, and he took him down into Egypt. You know, we all have difficult times in our lives, and we know them as trials. Everyone has trials. Saved, unsaved, money, no money, possessions, no possessions. Whether you're a business owner, business employee, whether you're a believer, not a believer, you can like it to being on the ocean. Everybody's on this, on their little inner tube on the ocean. Sometimes the waters are calm and sometimes they're wavy. The difference is, if you're a believer, you have on a life preserver. And that life preserver is called the word of God and his promises. You know, I'm amazed again as I read about people in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. Almost all the scripture is about people who were in serious difficulties. At least at one time in their life. You know, you look at Hebrews 11 of Noah and Moses and Abraham and Joseph and David and Jeremiah and the prophets of Job, of Paul. All the apostles were killed except John. Probably Solomon was the closest to a cushy life. But at the end of his life, he had a thousand wives. That would be a fiery trial. <laughs> I'm going to have to answer for that. But they were all in serious difficulties and had to rely on God to deliver them from something. You know, the Bible is not about people floating down the Jordan River eating grapes. It's just not. You don't make it in the hall of faith uh, you know like I said all the people that I can think of all the stories were people in a serious situation that they had to trust God for and we're, I'm reminded in Peter about think it not strange when you go through fiery trials we're in good company we're, at the end when we meet God we want him to say, well done, well done, thou faithful. Well, you've, you've got to be believing for something if you're faithful. You have got to be exercising your faith. That's what he said to these people. We're in good company if we're in difficulties, if we're believing for something. God is going to have a people who know how to trust him. And I'm just going to say, don't beat yourself up if you lose a battle. Get up. Get back in the ring. I lost a battle, but by God's grace, I'm determined to continue. These difficulties in your life may look like one of these. And Joseph probably experienced most of these. 
when we don't understand things that may come our way, when we aren't treated right or accepted by others, or when times of loneliness or even desertion of family members or friends, or maybe no friends, when those thoughts of depression or that feeling of God has deserted us comes, or when we wonder, where God, where are you? Don't you realize, don't you care what's happening to me? Or when something or someone close to you is taken away. Or, about, or what about when a trial of sickness comes your way? Maybe you don't feel a direction for your life. Maybe you think, I've been single long enough. When is that special person coming my way? Or why didn't I get that job? Anything you experience that appears to be contrary to what God promises us in the word is a testing or a trial. Joseph was 17 when all this stuff happened to him. Who all is 17? One. Then you got two. Joseph, okay, realize this. Joseph went through this. His, fan, his brothers sold them. He was, blotted, he was bought at the slave market. And we're going to look at his attitude through all of this. At this age, Joseph was called to go through some incredible hardships. God had a plan for Joseph through which God would preserve the whole nation of Israel. God had a calling on Joseph just like he has a calling on each of our lives here today. Maybe that calling on us isn't to save a whole nation, but an individual plan just the same. When all this was happening to Joseph, he didn't know the end of his life. He didn't know the end of the story like we don't know the end of the story. We're just in these situations that require us to trust God for something. We don't always know what God is doing when we experience hardships and trials. Someone shared a testimony here a long while back that when we go through trials, that God usually has a different goal for us than what we do. He wants to change us and to purge us of our flesh and selfishness. What do we want? We want out. We want off at the next train station. Now. Don't get me wrong, you know, we should be believing for our lives to line up with the word of God and to be free from what the devil is trying to do with us or trying to do in our life to pray for our deliverance. I'm not talking, but I, I'm, I'm talking about the point from when we claim a promise or we start on that walk to the end of that promise being fulfilled until that's seen in our eyes. You know, God doesn't take us home when we get saved. <laughs> he leaves us here. You remember Brother Tom would, and I'm going to do this, I think, he would write on the board, here's where you start. And then he would draw this line, and here's where the end of it is. And we're right here. Whoops. That's legs. We're somewhere in between that point and that point. And you all know what that line represents? That represents the walk that we're on. I remember Tom, remember Tom used to say, 
he used to stand here and he said, okay, there's a box here. And this is the beginning. That's where God is. And he's going to crank you through this box. And in that box is where God does a work in our hearts. And he doesn't say, before you get saved, he doesn't say, stoop down and look in that box and see if you want to do this. No, nobody, Joseph wouldn't have, I don't think Joseph would have if he would have known. I don't think the ones in Hebrews 11, if they were known, they were going to get cut asunder. Oh yeah, I'll go and I'll jump right in there. God doesn't show us that. But he does promise us promises that we hang on to, that we grasp on to, that we believe while we're in this working. And like I said, inside that machine is where God deals with us. He shows us what's in our heart. Our attitudes, maybe impatience, maybe I'm just talking about myself, to show us our faith or our lack of it. When we read the story of Joseph, it takes about 15 or 20 minutes to get from the dungeon to being second in power in Egypt. But the story takes 13 years of his life. That was the length of Joseph's machine. Now, I'm sure there were times that he was weary and discouraged, but his example is that he never gave up his trust in God. He never lost his testimony among his peers or his captives in prison. And from our side, we see God's sovereignty at work through a person who sought God during difficult times, and the end result was a blessed life. God has a plan, like I said, or a path for each of us to walk. I don't believe we go through life like a ball in a pinball machine. Just, you know, if you've ever seen, it just goes bing, 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 just like a rag doll being thrown around in there. If you feel that way, you've lost sight of the promises and what God has promised to do. If you just feel that your life is haphazard and I just go from crisis to crisis. I think that's more the picture of a life of an unsaved person who's never given their life to God. God promises to guide our steps with a word that he says will be a light to our path. Maybe sometimes we feel like a ball in a pinball machine. And I would say to myself, and to you, if that's the case, you've taken your word, you've taken your eyes off of something. You've taken your eyes off the promises. Like I said, God doesn't start maturing us at the place he wants us to be when we get married or older. When we get serious with God, God starts when, you're, when you get saved. He starts you in, the, in his machine. You have experiences in your past today that God is using to mold you into something he wants if you are yielding to his work in, his, in your life. You are on the potter's wheel right now. You're either allowing him to form you or you are resisting. And you know what happens when you resist. He takes you off. We are all in that machine. So back to our story of Joseph. I want to look at, the, at his character during his trial of being a slave and in prison. 
He was away from his family. He was in a foreign land. And when he was pressed and squeezed, let's see what it produced. In Genesis 39, verse 4, it says regarding Potiphar that he found grace in his eyes and served him. My number one point here is he submitted himself to authority. Here he was a slave, just having been bought like an animal at the, at the slave store. And we see him doing his best to be obedient and working with diligence for a slave owner. It says, Joseph found favor with his master. I don't think Joseph found favor with his master in between beatings and lashings, or because he was lazy and trying to escape, or mouthy because he shouldn't have even been in Egypt in the first place. You know, Joseph could have justified himself and said, this was all my brother's fault. This is unfair. We would probably say he had a good reason to be depressed and pouty, if that's a word. <clears throat> what do you do, young adults, when you feel that your parents aren't being fair with you? Or parents, what do you do when you feel like your children aren't being obedient? If you're at home, you feel maybe that you do more work. You do more of your share of work. Or at work, I deserve a raise. Those of you who work outside the home, your job is the place where you are being tested and proved every day you're out there. Also in our homes where no one knows us better than who we live with. There are opportunities and decisions almost every day where you can exhibit the works of the flesh or the works of the spirit. God sees every move you make, everything you say, every attitude you show to see if it's Christ-like. So when you're being squeezed, what comes out? Your lip? Complaints? Murmuring? Lashing out? Argumentative? Do you withdraw and get sullen? You know, in the New Testament, when Paul was in prison, what did he do? He sang. Do you think that in his flesh, he said, this is so much fun, I think I'm just going to sing? I don't think so. When you're living for God and the trials come up, it's evident after it's over if you let God to do a work in your life. And like Joseph, often we can't see what he's doing until later. In our flesh, we went out. But if we submit to that work God wants to do in us, I think we'll get through it much easier and be more apt to learn what God wants to bring us into as far as our character. You know, God brings circumstances in our lives to prove what's in our hearts. He said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 2, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness, to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or not. So what do you do when you feel like you've been treated unfairly by someone in authority? Does something come out your mouth that's not very nice? Can everybody in your house see that you're in a huff? You're miserable, so everybody else is going to be too. God is showing us what is in our heart by this pressure being exerted on us. So the question is, in our journey, do we just tough it out and believe God doesn't see my reaction to unpleasant circumstances? 
Do we become stiff-necked, refuse to let God do that work in our heart? Do we go from day to day and never ask God what work he wants to do in me through this trial? What does he want to change in me? What is he trying to show me about me? He has a plan and a purpose that he's preparing each of us for, but we'll never reach it if we're not maturing and growing in our trials, submitting to God. So if you don't get anything else from what I'm saying, get this, please. God forbid we go through life never yielding to the perfecting, purging work of God in our lives. Only when we get to the point of first looking to God and saying, what do you want me to learn through this? Are we growing in the Lord? Maybe it's just to trust him and to count it all joy. This should be our first thought when we enter into a trial. Not our last during a trial. God is sovereign and custom designs our troubles. If not, you have to think that God just bring, God brings trials on us just for kicks. I don't think so. Do we think that something, hap, hap, that something unexpected happens in our lives and God says, uh-oh, I wasn't planning on that. I'm going to have to change my plans. That doesn't happen. <clears throat> but if we don't take the time to pray and ask God to help me grow, to ask God, what do you want to show me during this time and react in a godly manner to grow into what he wants me to be your trial was a waste of time. And 10 years down the pike, where will we be? Still struggling with the same character issues? Just as angry with your boss or your parents for fill in the blank. God blessed Joseph and used him to save the future nation of Israel because none of his brothers had the character or fortitude God could use to save Jacob and his family for the upcoming famine. It says of his brothers that they hated or envied four times in Genesis 37. It doesn't sound like they were learning from their trials like Joseph was. When they were f faced with unpleasant circumstances, or as we said of Joseph, squeezed, it produced hate and envy. When unpleasant circumstances faced Joseph, it produced a godly person. We have to ask, what's it doing to you? What's it doing to me? And, you know, I just had this picture. Joseph, this is Joseph's life. He was being obedient. He wasn't angry. He was humble, as we'll see. He was doing what he felt were godly characteristics, what God want them to do. This is God, and he has sovereignly planned that this is how he was going to save the nation of Israel. And the reason this works is because this meshes. Joseph's life with God's plans brings about God's will. Okay, so first we see that Joseph submitted himself to authority. 
The second correct characteristic I want to look at is he was committed to moral purity. In Genesis 39.7, of course, we all know the story of Potiphar's wife trying to seduce Joseph into fornication. And it says this went on for some time, evidently, because it says in verse 10, she spoke to him day by day. She was trying to grind away at his convictions, looking for his guard to be down, trying to wear him down. You know, in today's world, we can see many things that try to do the same to us as Potiphar's wife was doing to Joseph. The media and what enters your eyes and your mind gate tries to break you down, get you, get you to get used to or desensitize us to sin and give us to give up our convictions. He uses, the devil uses friends sometimes, worldly acquaintances to suggest wrong things. We have to guard our eye and ear gate. You all know this, but I'm going to say it again. Keep control of your mind. We cannot dwell on the wrong things. How many times in Scripture are we encouraged to have a pure mind? Philippians 4.8. Whatsoever things are pure, think on these things. Fight back when those wrong thoughts enter your mind. Fight them with the blood of Jesus and praying in tongues. We have weapons. We have got to remember to use them. I heard one time a preacher say, an evil thought is like a bird flying over your head. Well, it's not your thought. It wasn't, it wasn't your thought. It was the bird. The problem is if that bird lands and makes a nest, then it's your fault. But all of us have those. I saw a sign on a church. It was here in town. It says, don't believe everything you think. And I thought, that is so true. You know those thoughts, and all of a sudden you're down, you're way down the pike. You're in a coffin, as Tom used to say, you know, you're laying like that. And you go, what am I thinking that for? Those weren't your thoughts. And let me say this too. Don't be condemned and let the devil tell you those are your thoughts if they're not. If you desire pure thoughts and lustful or doubting thoughts pop out of nowhere, rebuke them. You know, the devil wants something to condemn you with. He wants to say, see, you have a negative attitude. You have a negative mind. You are thinking, if that's not your desire, you just need to rebuke him. Let the bird fly over. Don't let him make a nest. I think some feel guilty, and you shouldn't. And I was thinking about Joseph. You know, you don't think this was a real temptation for Joseph? He was in a foreign land. His parents weren't around. His brothers weren't around. No one was in the house. Who would know? Do these thoughts ever come into your mind when you're tempted to look at something or to watch something or to do something you know you shouldn't? Because Joseph had a right relationship with God. He was aware what this would be. He said in verse 9, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? I think that's what all parents in here <laughs> believe and hope for their children. You know, not that, not that I'm not saying that we're immune to it. 
But there's a point, you know, with children, there's a point to a certain age, I'm not going to do this because what would mom or dad think? That's a good thing. But as you get older in a relationship with the Lord, it's the same thing. What would God think? That's what Joseph did. The Bible talks about the sin that so easily besets us. And I think, for, you know, for me, we need to take the offense every morning and start by saying, I have a zero tolerance policy against that sin today. We need to confess it to God. We need to confess it to the devil. And we need to tell ourselves, I have a zero tolerance policy. Set the terms of the day early, when or before you even get out of bed. So how does Joseph deal with this temptation? Very simple in, in verse 12, and I love this verse. He left and fled and got him out. How simple. Look for the door. There always is one. Get thee out. Okay, the first point was he, was he submitted himself to authority. The second was moral purity. The third point, another character I want to look at, is that he was humble. In chapter 41, verse 16, he was called upon to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And what did he say? He said, it is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer. Joseph wanted God to get the glory, not himself. It would have been easy for Joseph to think, this is my chance to impress the king. You know, maybe I can get a break. He'll think I'm pretty impressive if I can, if I can uh, interpret his dream. Maybe he'd let me out of prison. Pride can be as much of a temptation as the temptation of lying or lust. And sometimes, you know, we're the only one that know it. We're the only one. We know our motives. Our heart or our conscience reveals it to us before we even say it. Trying to impress others by our abilities, our knowledge, our experiences. Proverbs 6, 17 says, God hates a proud look. Joseph was on guard not to be proud. Another point about Joseph's character, this is number four. Joseph did not seek revenge for, as we say in Kentucky, having been done wrong. You know, they caused Joseph to be in jail for 13 year, years and all the hardships that that brought, being away from his family. When they came before Joseph to get food, they were providentially brought before the one they tried to kill. Joseph could have returned the favor. He could have gotten even. He could have evened the score. Now, Joseph was the cat. They were the mice. In Genesis chapter 45, verse 5, Joseph relates this amazing insight into his trials. He, you know, at that point, he's revealed himself to his brothers. He said, I'm Joseph, the one you sold. You know, and, and they were, um, because of the famine that was in the land, they had come down asking for food, and they came before Joseph. And, of course, he sent them back. Is this all your brothers? No, we have a younger one at home. Benjamin's at home. Bring him down here. And this was going on. And Joseph says, 
Um, in Genesis 45, it says, Now therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. God obviously did a work in his heart. For God did send me before you to preserve life. In verse 5, it says, For God did send me. He sent him to Egypt. He sent him to be a slave. He sent them to be, he sent him to be in prison. And at this point, Joseph realizes it wasn't you because of your hate. It wasn't you that I ended up in Egypt. God did send me. Verse 7, and God sent me. Verse 8, it was not you that sent me, but God. Verse 9, God hath made me the ruler. Again, this was this idea of, of God's sovereignty working in Joseph, who was obedient. And my point this morning is, let's be obedient to work with God's sovereignty. We see God had a purpose in Joseph's trials, and he has a purpose in our trials. Joseph didn't know, like I said, he didn't know why. So again, we see Joseph submitted himself to authority. He stayed morally pure. He remained humble. He did not seek revenge. And lastly, we can see the destination or the conclusion of the matter, which is this. I believe it is being at a place with the Lord where we have the utmost confidence that he is sovereign and is in complete control of our lives. This involves giving up control and yielding to his divine guidance in our lives. And again, I don't mean some type of fatalism where we just take whatever comes our way. God wants us to do battle with the enemy, believe for the promises, but with an attitude of victory. The destination is when we submit on the altar and calmly rest in the Lord to work things out, to stop complaining, calling one another, getting on Facebook, telling everybody our problems. Then I believe we will live at peace with ourselves, with everyone around us, and be pleasing to God who has promised to bless such a one who does this. And maybe we should start by repenting of how we've acted to our difficulties in the past. An interesting verse is in Psalms 105. I do want, I do want to turn to this. Psalms 105 and verse 17 And it says, he sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. That is an amazing verse to me. The word of the Lord tried him. 
Have you or are you being tried by his word? That word tried is a word that describes a metal worker melting, refining, and casting metal into something, heating it up. Sometimes it gets hot, doesn't it? I know it does. Sometime in that machine, it gets hot. God is making something. My prayer is that God will give us, will give me the grace to submit to the machine of life. And may we trust in the process. That God is in control, making us into what he wants. I want us to rest and to take courage in his sovereignty. And sometimes that takes faith, doesn't it? It does. God says he has plans for us in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. And in closing, I just want to remind us of this, and I think we've all heard it before. Doubt looks at God through the circumstances. Faith looks at God through the promises. We need to, rem- we need to remember that. But it just, it was, it's always been interesting to me, the life of Joseph, how everything had to work. I mean, what were the chances? You could say that of 10 different circumstances that he found himself in, 10 different um, evidence or things that went on, what are the chances of that happening? It's because God is in control. And I'm sure, you know, we're, we're somewhere along here. Some of you are right there. Some of you are here. Some of you are here. But we've got to trust that God is doing a good work in us until we get there. Father, our prayer this morning is, Lord, that you would show us anew of your love, your sovereignty, your wisdom. Exhibit your peace towards us, Lord, that we would believe that you are in control, that we would um, be calm in where you have us, Lord. We're thankful for your word, Lord, that is a light into our path and helps us to understand. And I just ask you to um, protect all of us today, Lord. I pray that we would maybe take some time to either repent if that's what it needs to be done, but just to reconsider um, how you're working in our lives, yield, be yielding to that work. And I pray that the end of it will be peace and joy, Lord, as to what you bring us, Lord. And we're thankful for it this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.